Hey guys, what's up? I'm Shama. And I'm Tiffany. And you're listening to Chai Tea Party. This is a podcast about the underdogs. The brave, the creative, and the slightly off in the basic community. No more falling down. No more falling down. Not wondering if you're down. No more falling down. Tour, um, but I go by Ruby, <laughs> um, and I pretty much grew up in the U.S. ever since I was three, uh, moved around from Canada back to the U.S. multiple times, so I mean, I haven't really lived in Pakistan, I haven't really lived in, you know, uh, a different country besides the Western Hemisphere, so I have three, uh, we're three siblings, and I'm the middle child, so uh, yeah, <laughs> we all know what that means, exactly. Um, yeah, so it was always, uh, you know, I kind of always fit into that label where it's like middle child problems, so I mean, kind of growing up, I felt like I was always the one that was a little bit more rebellious in terms of, I guess, um, questioning authority in that sense, where, and questioning society, because I would want to go, you know, ride motorcycles, and that's such a taboo, you know, in, in a Pakistani community, like, oh my god, a girl's doing that, like, what is she going to, like, what is she going to do, and, you know, wanting to go out with my friends, and wanting to talk about mental illness, and that was just such a, you know, a stigmatized topic to talk about, um, but I kept on pushing the envelope, so, um, I always felt that there was, I don't know, some kind of weird cloud, a fog, some kind of thing that always, was around me ever since I was 17. Um, and I never really could figure out what it was. And, you know, you would hear things about, you know, like in, in YouTube videos or on TV, like, oh, there's mental illness and there's depression and, oh, I physically couldn't get out of bed. And I'm like, oh, that, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. Like, what are you talking about? Like, snap out of it. You know, and especially growing up in a society, like, uh, it, I used to live in Windsor, which has a very prominent Muslim uh, community. No one talks about it. No one comes out and talks about it. So when um, I feel like I ended up going to med school at 20, I felt like a lot of that got exacerbated and uh, just things started to come out. No one really knew how to fix that. Um, I felt like I really couldn't talk to anyone. Um, I mean, I did have Caucasian friends that I would talk to and, you know, their first instinct would be like, oh, it's not a big deal. Just go to a psychiatrist or just, you know, stay on medication. But the thing yeah. is that in a community where I was living in, you can't do that. It's absolutely, you know, um, it's just not, it's out of the question. So, it, like starting medical school, I pretty much got into a lot of things, you know, hit it for my family, like, you know, drinking and just, I mean, even hooking up with people. And I'll be very honest about that because I didn't know how to, um, I guess, uh, filter that out. I didn't know how to validate myself. I didn't know how to deal with my issues. And I felt like that was the only way, like maybe it would make me feel better. And then, and to have that connection <clears throat> with somebody, even if it's just for a moment, we've talked about this mm -hmm. before, but like having that connection and that intimacy with somebody when you're going through something like that is like, so much it's like more a, extreme. Yeah. And it's a <laughs> yeah. bandaid, you know, mm -hmm. so which is, I know, like I thought about that too. Like in that instant, it would just, I would be in a fog and I'd be like, I have to do this like right now because I want instant mm -hmm. gratification. I yeah. want to feel better instantly. And that's mm -hmm. the only thing that could 
make me feel better, like, at that moment. Um, but then at the end of it, you're not really dealing with your problems, exactly. you know what I mean? Right. And it just comes back to haunt you. So, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, drinking, like, blackout drinking, because I just wanted to numb myself. And, you know, I never, obviously, like, you can't talk to your parents about this kind of stuff. And, no. um, but, the, the, like, thankfully, um, I'm really close to my sisters, and they would hear bits and pieces about it, and they kind of confided to my parents. and like, listen, you know, she's going through a really hard time. Maybe we should do something. But, you know, anytime my mom called, she'd be like, you know what, just just go pray. Just go pray right now, and that's it. And I'm like, but the thing is, I am praying. I am praying, and it's not helping, and I don't know what to do. And I'm, like, praying even more than I was supposed to. So, like, you know, it's not bringing me any solace, and I don't know what to do at this point. So I think that delved me into maybe even a darker place because then I felt like I was losing my faith, and I felt like, wow, I'm just not a Muslim at all. You know, because, like, praying should help. Like, I should believe in God, and he's supposed to, you know, help me get through this, but I'm not feeling anything. So I think that was a really dark period in my life where I just pretty much lost everything, and I had no direction and honestly nothing to believe in. So I feel like just within those two, three years, I was spiraling, you know, into a very dark place with no one really to talk to, no one really knew what was going on, up until the point of my uh, last year of med school when I ended up starting rotations, which is basically you're going into the hospital and you're shadowing people, or you're shadowing doctors. And the thing is that it's a lot harder than, you know, studying 24-7 because you're up at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, it's so difficult and the stress gets to you. So in my first rotation, that really hit me. I ended up feeling very anxious, which I never had before. So it was depression that was starting to mesh in with generalized anxiety, started to mesh into body dysmorphia, and I wasn't eating anything. I would sit a certain way so people would like me more. It was so weird and it was just all in my head, but I don't know. I just, at that moment, I thought it was the right thing to do. Wait, can you explain that a little bit? Because I've never heard that before like what do you mean like you're sitting a certain way so, so uh, I remember specifically this one time that I was out with um a few of my colleagues um at a baseball game and I felt like I had to sit up straight to make sure that my body was in the perfect position and have my arms out so they weren't like flabby looking or anything like that oh, with my goodness. arms back and it was so conscious that I was, I was terrified because I was thinking that, oh, what if my colleagues see me hunched over and they see, you know, my pooch or if they see that my arms are a little too flabby or, you know, just, just stuff like that. And it was so, it was starting to take over oh. like everything that I did. Even when I was walking, I used to stare in the, in the windows of um, like shopping malls and I'm like, am I, am I walking okay? Like I want that thigh gap. I want to look like I have long legs, you know, all of that stuff. And it was just horrible. Um, so with that, I just ended up being in a really bad place. I even got to the point where I ended up emailing my program director, which is basically like the, the principal of, of, the, of the hospital. And it was just a one-line email saying, I'm going to do something today. That was it. And five minutes later, there was an ambulance at my house. And I was on the floor in the fetal position sobbing, like just wailing because I couldn't like get the pain out of me. I just felt like I had to scream so loud to just shed the pain somehow. But I mean, I couldn't do it and I 
couldn't go to a psychiatric hospital. I mean, come on. Like, if my parents found out, what was going to happen? Right. You know? Um, so, I obliged. I went. And uh, I was admitted. And just being in that place was so surreal because, I mean, it's like being in a prison. I mean, they make you change into, like, these green scrubs. And I was in, like, this, you know, four-by-four four concrete room and, you know, there was no glass, no nothing like that. And I was like, this is, this is not necessary. Like, I'm really not that psychotic. I'm not that crazy. Like, come on. Right. And they're like, no, well, you know, based on the email that you sent, we do think that you're a risk. And I'm like, I, I can't be that crazy. Like, I'm not that crazy. Um, but after spending eight hours over there and talking to a psychiatrist, he, he diagnosed me with uh, depression, body dysmorphia, and anxiety. And he said, okay, take these pills for seven days and come back and check in with me. But the thing is that you're a high-risk patient because you have so much going on and you aren't even to terms with what you're going through. You're not going to follow up. And I knew that I wasn't going to follow up, like, at all. So after that day was done, my mom ended up calling me and she's like, where were you? Like, I knew where you were. Because she reached out to my friends and they, they found out, like, I told them before I was going to the hospital. And uh, she's like, well, how are you feeling? I think it's just, like, one of your uh, your moody days. Like, it's, it's not a big oh, no. deal, right? So she didn't, she, I don't think that she came to term with it at all. Um, but after that, I mean, I didn't take the medication. I thought it was completely unnecessary. And especially being in the medical field, I think that added on to it too. Because as a medical student, I mean, you're already under so much stress. You want to shine. You want to get that, you know, that residency placement. And I saw all my peers shining and... I mean, they were writing papers, and they were so functional, and I'm like, why am I the only one that's, you know, failing at life right now? This, this is horrible, like, you know, what am I going to think? But I feel like in one of my last rotations, even when I was speaking to my coordinators at school, um, they pretty much knew what was going on because I wasn't performing well, and I was skipping days, and I mean, program directors, they talk to each other, and they're like, is everything okay? Like, make sure that this is actually a pretty big deal. Um... So I ended up taking three months off after um, my pediatrics rotation, and uh, that was because I didn't talk to my family for two weeks. And if anyone knows, my sisters and I, we, we talk like every two hours, you know, at least we, we text each other. And the fact that I didn't talk to them for two weeks and I was thinking about, you know, leaving the country and becoming delusional, like emptying out my bank accounts and just cutting off all contact with my family, it was just so, it was like it, I was in the twilight zone because these things you don't even think about, you know, like thinking about purchasing a gun or overdosing on caffeine pills, like just anything to make the pain go away. Mm -hmm. So after that, I ended up going to um, one of uh, the doctors that I was working with at the time. And he kind of knew what was going on because he saw how I was performing. And he said, listen, everyone's going through this. No one talks about this. Why don't you take this medication? And I can 100% agree, uh, you know, guarantee that you're going to feel better. So I took the medication and probably within like two to three days, I was like, oh my goodness, like I feel so much better. And I don't know if it's a placebo effect, but I don't know, like, thank God that I'm actually doing something to make this better. Um, so after that is when I ended up taking three months off, uh, and I went back home and, uh, what was that like? Was that like a hard decision to make? That was very hard because I feel like the entire time during med school and during my rotations, I would constantly tell my parents that, please let me come home. Like, please let me come home. I just need maybe like a month to like get my head straight and see someone. And 
what they would say is that, you know what, you don't have time. Like, you just have to get through this. Like, that's it. You know, being from a Pakistani family, you don't want to be in that position where, like, if I was back home, everyone would be questioning, like, oh, hey, why is she back home? Did she feel something? Or, like, is everything okay? And my parents didn't want to deal with that. Um, They wanted me to graduate on time. Um, I was, like, the first person in my family and even my extended family to be in medical school, so they didn't want anything to screw that up. Right? So, um, yeah, there was way too many times where even my sisters vouched for me. They're like, just let her come home. It's not a big deal. Like, even if she, you know, misses a semester, in the long run, it'll be better. But I don't think my parents really understood the extent of it. Um, But thank goodness, after I was back home, my sisters vouched for me. And they sat my mom down and were like, listen, this is just going to end up horribly. Because we know that she did end up trying to overdose on caffeine pills. She's thinking about running away. She's just absolutely histrionic. She's not thinking straight. She has her medical school um, degree in jeopardy because, I mean, I was on my last leg, you know. They were, uh, I skipped so many days and that's that's not because I wanted to. It's physically because I could not get out of bed. I, I couldn't think. I couldn't concentrate. And um, when I was back home and I was taking my medication, my family just saw a complete 180. They're like, well, we haven't seen you like this in years. Um, did that help them understand? I mean, for, for my sisters, it did. But I think for my parents at the time, they really thought that, oh, you know what? She's happy just because she's back home. And maybe oh, yeah. it's just because she was homesick and we think that's the reason. So um, it, even when I was back home, I had this little pill of my medication, my antidepressants. And, uh, sometimes I would misplace it and I would ask my mom, I was like, oh, where, where are my pills? And she's like, oh, they're right there. And I think like maybe three weeks after the fact, I was like, mom, you know what these pills are? She's like, yeah, it's a vitamin. And I'm like, oh, oh no, mother, what are you, what are you talking about? You know what this is. So she was in complete denial. She knew what it was, but I don't think that she really wanted to say the word. Right. And I was like, mom, this is an antidepressant. She's like okay, well, how long are you going to be on it? Like, two weeks? And I'm like, no, Mom, I feel better with this, and I want to be on it. I don't feel like I want to wean off of it. It helps me function, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think she was, she was terrified um, because I guess, like, let's say hypothetically if I was to get married, you know, even as an arranged marriage, whatever, she didn't want someone to, like, maybe go through my purse one day and find the pills. And be like, oh, what the hell is this? It's all about right. what everyone else would think. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it would cause problems for her being like, oh, wow, you just gave us this crazy person and whatever. Like, you know, that's not it at all. And uh, even when, uh, when I was talking to my parents, I mean, there were only two words that come to mind with psychiatric illness, which is either you're crazy, majnoon, or wahil, right? And that's it. There's no intermediate word for mental illness. Right. Um or that you're struggling. It's, you're just at that complete end of the spectrum where you're just absolutely crazy, you're psychotic, and, like you something know, is wrong with you. Exactly. Right. And that, you know, you can't function, mm-hmm. but that's not what it is at all. And I think that's what our society is really lacking in understanding mm-hmm. right now. Um, I feel like even with my parents, um, they, they're a part of the documentary too. I mean, I, I asked them to be a part of it because I said, you have to be, you know, some of the people that stand up in our community and talk about this. So they obliged and they got on it and they, they spoke about, uh, 
the trials that they went through with me. But even after the fact, they, you know, they still get upset sometimes saying, like, do, do you really want to show this, like, out, you know, uh, out to everyone? And are you sure you want to talk about this? And, you know, if people come over and, you know, they propose something, um, like, um, like a marriage proposal, like, are you sure you want to talk to them about this? And I was like, absolutely. I'm not going to hide this. I'm not ashamed of it. Like, absolutely. And that's more of a reason to do it. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, and it's very frustrating because the thing is, like, after years of talking to them about it and helping them come to terms with it, they still kind of revert back in times of stress um, that, oh, are you sure you want to do this? Mm-hmm. I mean, if everything is going fine and, oh, wow, you're doing this documentary, we're so proud of you, it's great. But anytime I hit a bump in the road, they're like, okay, you know what, just no, just don't do it. This is, it's causing too many problems. And I'm like, this is what I'm fighting against. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. what we're trying to do, trying to get rid of the stigma. You know, my sisters, they're very supportive about this. Um, but even my older sister, who's a little bit more conservative, I mean, she wears a hijab and she's married and her husband's a little conservative too. And she has never told her husband about, you know, what I've gone through. And she said, well, do you really want to tell him? Like, it's, you know, it's not a big deal. And I don't want him to think that you're crazy, which, which hurts a lot, you know, because I mean, he's my brother-in-law and you do want to talk to him about it. And I, I want him to know me as a person, but I mean, there's still so much, left to do and you know in society even in my own family so so you mentioned the documentary why don't you why don't we go back to that and why don't you tell us about that project more so um after I uh, went home for for a couple of months my next rotation was in psychiatry so basically I would be shadowing um a a psychiatrist and just working with patients and you know getting to know them and treating them um so I was on the plane uh to Miami which is where my rotation was and I felt like I just had to get this truth out of me. So I made this long post about the last three years of my life um, in med school, how I acted, how I treated people, what I did in terms of like smoking, drinking, drugs, you know, starting rumors about people just to make myself feel better. I mean, I was a horrendous person because I could not control what I was going through. And I just felt like I had to apologize for all of that and just come out and tell them that I'm suffering with mental illness. And I'm a medical student and I'm a Muslim and I'm a female and I'm going to come out and talk about this. Mm -hmm. So um, after I made that post, I received so much feedback. I mean, from my cousins that I visit like every three months in Toronto, they came out to me and they said, oh my goodness, do you realize that I've attempted suicide, that I'm going through mental illness? I was like, I had no idea, like at all. Um, some of my closest friends, uh, people in the medical community, people in, in Windsor, in, in my own community, they were coming out and saying that we're, we're doing, dealing with the same thing. But the thing is that we're not courageous enough to come out and talk about it. So they, I feel like that they do want to talk about it. They just can't. You know, they just need a little push over that hump. They need some one person to first say something. Like, right. First be like me, and then you'll see other hands like start mm-hmm. to go Exactly. Up. Just even if it's slowly and they're shaking, but they're going to go up. Yeah. So after that, I realized, oh my goodness, like there needs to be something out there um, that people can relate to because even when I was struggling through mental illness, I tried so hard to find blogs or websites or documentaries, YouTube videos, just anything that I could relate to that wasn't linked to maybe the Caucasian, um, uh, I guess like the Caucasian population. 
um, because there was nothing specific to maybe Eastern cultures. Yeah. There just wasn't. I mean, everyone just comes out and talks about, like, oh, just, you know, take medication, go see a psychiatrist. But, I mean, there's so many different factors that this culture brings to the table that it's it's so tough. And it's expensive to see a therapist or psychiatrist. Exactly. And that's one of the things that I was terrified about because, um, I mean, I'm Canadian. I had no insurance over here. And the psychiatrist basically was like, oh, yeah, just come visit me every week. And I'm like, I mean, even if I didn't tell my parents, they're going to see the bill. And I can't afford that. They're going to be like, what the heck are you doing? And, you know, I I could not afford that. So it's horrible. So um, after viewing all these people, you know, come to me and talk to me about it, I was like, okay, this, there really needs to be something out there because I still haven't found any kind of resource out there for people, um, that they can reach out to or relate to, um, that can let them know that they're not the only ones that are suffering from mental illness. So, um, within the last year, I started developing this idea that I want an interview style documentary where we're going to have real people, different ages, different backgrounds who are all Muslim um, different professions just coming out and talking about their experiences with uh, mental illness and the stigma that they've fought through. So we actually ended up filming in June. I recruited um, a lot of people. It was through Craigslist and different mosque websites, just getting the word out and saying, if you want to be a part of this, we would really appreciate it. But the, the funny thing is that I received a lot of backlash with that too, because I don't think that people really understood what I was trying to do. I think there was a lot of anger um, because they really thought that I was trying to link the religion with mental illness. Oh, that's interesting. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, there was one specific individual who said that Islam's got nothing to do with mental illness and why are you trying to do this? And I'm like, that's not what I'm trying to do at all. I never said that mm-hmm. Islam is the religion that is linked to mental illness. What I'm saying is it's the culture. There is no reconciliation between the religion and mental illness. I mean, we were the first, you know, um, uh, we were the first religion to open up a psychiatric hospital. That's the religion. You know, even in the Quran, there's so many verses that says that, you know, that deals with mental illness and how you should treat people. So it's absolutely nothing to do with religion. It's more so the culture and, you know, keeping up appearances, keeping up your status, keeping up your reputation. Um, So, I mean, I tried explaining that to people, but I think they were just so set in their ways that, I don't know, it's so difficult to break through that. And even when I was uh, filming in one of the mosques, um, getting B-roll in Windsor, um, there were two individuals, two ladies, and uh, I just went up to them and I asked them, oh, would you like to be a part of the documentary? We're just filming the mosque. And I told them what I was doing. Um, And I think, like, uh, they, they declined, so I was like, not a big deal. That's fine. And around five minutes later, they came up to me just livid. And they said, "They said, what, what are you trying to do here? And I'm like, oh, I'm making a documentary about mental illness. And they're like, well, do you have permission to be in here? Like, who, who asked you to do this? What what organization are you from? And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, I'm not trying to do anything here. Like, why do you think I'm trying to bring the religion down? I'm one person. That's not even what I'm doing. You know? So, I mean, there were trials and tribulations with, with making this um, documentary um, uh, I mean, I spoke to you earlier too, uh, one of the individuals that was in the documentary, uh, was actually speaking about her brother. And I mean, just in the last week we ended up doing the final cut and we ended up sending it to organizations to potentially hold viewings and stuff like that. And I guess her mom got wind of it and, um, she ended up calling me and she said, can you take her part out? And 
I was like, okay, can I ask why? And she said, well, because her brother is married now. He just got married within the last two weeks. And um, we don't want to cause any kind of riff between that. And uh, she's speaking about her brother's mental mental illness and we're not very comfortable with that being out there. So, I mean, initially they were completely fine with it. I mean, she obviously spoke to her parents about this before being on it. She knew like exactly where it was going to be shown, um, even in the Windsor community, in our community. And uh, I think just when marriage gets involved or I guess society gets involved, it, it really strikes a chord with people and they don't want to talk about it. It really upsets them. It really puts them on their, it puts them on edge. It really does. So, I mean, we had to respect her wishes and we ended up taking her out. But that was just another thing where it's like, you know, people are okay with talking about it as long as it, you know, doesn't really leave the room, mm -hmm. you know? So mm -hmm. within like, you know, a group of like five to 10 girls, it's fine. Oh yeah, I'm very depressed. But then it won't ever leave that um, safe place, right. which I mean, it's, it's good in a way. However, I think that sometimes does add to the stigma of it because no one's really coming out and talking about it. Yeah, it's right? a little counterproductive. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, um, the documentary that, uh, I've been working on, it's called Veil of Silence. Um, it is an interview style documentary. So we have, um, individuals, um, ranging from students, uh, to engineers, to psychiatrists, social workers, uh, from different backgrounds, like Albanian, Pakistani, to Indians, um, African Americans, uh, coming out and talking about their experiences with mental illness. Uh, so the main idea behind this was that we wanted to hold events within Dearborn and Detroit, um, Southfield, maybe Ann Arbor, Lansing, Windsor even, and show it at different venues uh, to allow individuals to come out and view this documentary First and foremost, to let them know that they're not alone. Secondly, to let them know that there is something being done and that this is something that needs to be talked about. So even if a person who thinks that, oh, there's no such thing as mental illness, they come and view this, maybe they can leave after watching the documentary thinking that, okay, maybe there is something. You know, it might sway them in some way or another. I understand that there's people who are still going to think that, oh, they're just sad. They, they're not going to get it. But at least for the people who are just walking the tightrope between is it a mental illness and should I get treatment, maybe it will just help them, you know, get some solace and receive the treatment that they need. I think people are still struggling, like, even, like, people that don't understand, like, um, my mom has struggled with depression for a mm -hmm. long time. She's on medication, so she was very understanding. But my boyfriend, who's from India, mm -hmm. doesn't quite understand what it means to be depressed or what happens when you're depressed. Right. So I'll just, like, be at bed. This it, I remember in July, it, had, it was really bad, and I was walking my dog down, like, this trail that we have, mm -hmm. and I had sunglasses on because I was hysterically bawling for no reason. Right. I had my life, everything was going perfectly. I had no reason to be upset. And I could, like, not control. And he just did not understand why. He was like, well, let's go back and figure out, like, what happened. Mm. Right. I keep trying to say, like, it's it's a chemical imbalance. It's not a choice that I'm making to right. be sad. Trust me, I wouldn't be in this state if I didn't mm -hmm. have to be. Right. So I think that things like this and, like, even your docu documentary can help people that are still not understanding that, like, yes, a lot of people deal with it. No, it's not a choice. And... There are ways to combat it. There's ways to, to, to right. stay in the battle and be winning all the time instead of, like, having to give in to it. I think, to be honest, there is a lot of, um, 
lack of knowledge. I think there's a lot of ignorance behind this because, um, like, even for my cousins who've grown up here, uh, they've lived their entire lives in Canada. Um, you know, uh, the, my cousin, his name is Adil, he was the one who came up to me and said, oh, I've, um, you know, uh, I've tried committing suicide before. However, his brother, I reached out to him saying that, you know what, I think that he may not want to seek treatment. So why don't you go and, you know, try to convince him to go, you know, go with him. But with him, his issue was, I don't agree with antidepressants because you have to be, you get addicted and uh, you have to be on it for lifelong. Uh, it's a lifelong thing and you turn into a zombie and, you know, there's so much there's so much lack of education, and I said, that's that's absolutely not right. I mean, one episode of uh, major depression uh, disorder, it lasts nine months. So you could potentially be on it for as little as nine months. It doesn't turn you into a zombie. It just turns you into your baseline functionality, mm-hmm. right? And there's absolutely no addictive uh, properties with the medication, but I think that there's people who really think it's something like, oxycodone or heroin mm-hmm, that right. you get addicted to and you become dependent on it oh. yeah which is and it's not just from my cousins it's from like various different people in Windsor too where um they they really do stigmatize even medication because they don't want to be on it um another individual who ended up reaching out to me he basically said that you know what I'm okay with receiving behavioral therapy but with medication I think that really makes it real for them because they think that they're treating some kind of disease and it is a disease, but they don't want to come to terms with that. Um, so another individual who was talking to me, he said, that's fine. I can go to a psychiatrist. I can go to a doctor, talk to them about it. But medication, I'm not really a big fan. And that, I don't think that that is the right approach because you need both to, what, what? Tell me about it. <laughs> um, I went to go see a psychiatrist and he suggested both. Right. And I said, yeah, totally okay with the therapy part, but I don't want to be on antidepressants for life. It was one of those things. Okay. You know? But um, my friend who was in med school at the time, she's mm-hmm. the one that told me I should probably look into seeing a psychiatrist, you know, all that stuff. And I was so grateful that she said something because I probably wouldn't have even talked to my doctor to recommend a psychiatrist. Right, right. Um, and I was like, okay, yeah, you're right, you're right. I get it. I should do it. Mm-hmm. And then when he said it, he was like, you know, I'll put you on a mild one for right now. It's a mild anxiety medicine. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, that's fine. But can I do therapy for a few months and then decide if I want to take the medication? Yeah. You know, I was actually really nervous. I'm yeah. like, I don't want to do this. So I talked to my friend again. She's like, try it. <laughs> She's like, what's the worst that can happen? Like, he's obviously a licensed professional. You know, he wouldn't say that if, like, you didn't come in crying. Right. You know? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, just try it. Maybe fine. After a week and you say, like, I really don't want to do this. I feel really uncomfortable. Don't do it. You right. Know, he's not force feeding it to you. Right. So I actually took the medication and then a week later, I went to go to therapy. Right. So I was like, okay, yeah, I can do both. Like, they're hand in hand. And it made me feel a little bit better that I was still talking to someone. I wasn't taking the easy way out, like some parents might think. Right. Um, you know, by taking the medication, like, all of a sudden, everything's okay. Right. So I was definitely skeptical of that, too. So it's interesting you say that. See, yeah, because I feel like um, with, with the medication, I really think that, you know, uh, when they're just talking to another individual, it's just like, oh, you're talking to a friend. It's, it's not a big deal, but I feel like when they end up taking medication, it, it really does become very real for them that, oh, oh crap, like I have a chemical imbalance, like what, what am I going to do about this? But the thing is, I feel like you really do need both to, to bring you back to baseline. You know, talking about it is great. And, you know, meditation is great. Praying is great. There's various different ways that, you know, you can help mental illness, but at the end of the day, I mean, there's studies, it's, it's serotonin imbalance, you know what I mean? It's 
you have low serotonin levels, which you need to bring up the baseline. I mean, I always give this example where like a diabetic comes in and they're like, oh, it's no big deal. I'll just, you know, uh, talk to people about it and, you know, <laughs> fix my diet. It's not a big deal. Well, at the end of the day, you're not making any insulin. You need to take insulin shots. Like, otherwise, you're going to get, like, retinopathy. Your eyes are going to get messed up. Your kidneys are going to get messed up. It just deteriorates. And the thing is, um, depression is, is exactly like that. Because if you don't treat it at the root, it is going to get worse. You know, it develops into different things. Like, again, with me, it was anxiety and body dysmorphia. And there's so many things that end up going hand in hand that it just get, ends up getting worse. And you really do need to treat it at the right time. So you don't get to that point where, you know, um, you're just so far out that even seeking treatment is out of the question, right? So. That's so funny that you put it that way. That makes so much sense. I love that. Yeah, Yeah. it does. Because it's like that invisible illness. Like you see all the time, you see like memes and all that stuff. Like, yeah. Um, like people wouldn't tell a cancer patient, oh, just get out of bed. It'll be fine. Right. Exactly. Why are you sad? You know, like that kind of thing. And it's so true because people can't see it. Exactly. Like, oh, it can't be true. Right. They see you pass out because you didn't have a candy bar. Like, yeah, they'll believe that you have diabetes. Exactly. <laughs> that's what I mean. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's very unfortunate that the, like the signs that people do see is the end, end point, which is suicide mm-hmm. or being admitted into a psychiatric hospital. Seeing these signs beforehand it's, it's difficult and it is subtle at times, but I really think that if you're paying attention, these signs are very, very clear. I mean, you lose concentration, you become very anxious. There's something called psychomotor retardation where you become very slow in doing things and you just don't have the energy to do stuff like that. Um, you do end up having suicide ideologies where, you know, you may have never thought about it before, but it just kind of creeps into your mind where you're like, I mean, what if, what if I just wasn't here? right? It could be as simple as that. And that could snowball into this huge thing where you do end up, you know, looking for pills to overdose on. You do end up looking for various different ways to commit suicide, you know, just where you just want to get rid of the pain. So, um, you know, it's, it's losing interest. It's feeling guilty about the way that you feel. It's, um, you know, not doing things that you used to enjoy, and it, it's a very slow process. It's not something overnight where just one random day you're upset and everything that you used to enjoy before, you don't enjoy anymore. It's it's very, very slow. And I mean, with me especially, I mean, I used to love baking and I noticed a slow decline where I'm like, I just, I don't even have the energy to bake anymore. You know, whereas before I used to be, it's like three o'clock in the morning and I'm like happily baking cookies and it's fine. (laughs) But then at the end of the day, I was like, I don't want to go out to movies. I don't want to see my friends and I just, I don't have the energy and wait, why do I feel like this? And oh God, like I don't even want to think about it. So, you know, not even dealing with it. It's so much energy to even think about why you're, you're not doing these things that you don't even think about it. And it just snowballs into something, um, something really, really bad, you know, something that could have very severe endpoints. And the thing is that, again, um, most of the time we see these individuals, you know, in the mosques that are 20 years old, no one's talking about it. They're perfectly healthy, but it kind of does get out that, you know, it was through suicide. It was through either like heroin addiction. It was through uh, depression that they ended up taking their life. It's through, like, the grapevine that you do find out this stuff. I mean, they're completely healthy and as a 20-year-old human being. So the fact that no one's talking about this, it's just, it's horrible because we need to discuss this and help people that are suffering through this illness, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we need to make sure that 
there's no excuse for people to be denial in denial anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, ignorance is not bliss, but <laughs> in this case, like literally, people think that. Like, well, we don't want to think about sad things. Why would we do that? You know, like just pick yourself back up and be happy. You know, like exactly. diet and exercise, like all that stuff. But, exactly. Yeah, that's that's another one too. It's not just about your diet and exercise. Mm-hmm. There are, like you said, your serotonin levels are off. And just because you're going to eat well and go for a run is not going to fix everything. Maybe right. temporarily. Maybe temporarily. I, I completely agree. I mean, there's there's nothing, you know, um, within the religion that's wrong at all. Prayer yeah. is great. Absolutely do it. Meditation is great. Diet and exercise is great. But, again, at the end of the day, it's not going to bring your levels back up to normal. Right? Sorry. I'm getting, like, very medicinal about this. No, but I, I feel good. like that this is the only way... To get people to see that this is a real thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we can talk about the signs and symptoms of it. Like, okay, you could be sad. You could feel guilty. Have decreased concentration. But at the end of the day, it is exactly like diabetes where you're lacking insulin. Yes, you're lacking serotonin. You do need medication. You you know, talking about it isn't going to help. So you need to have both to become that functional human being that you were before. Bring you back baseline. Mm -hmm. Right? So I feel like that people do need to get educated about this. I think, like, even talking about it from a medicinal point, I think there's so much work that needs to be done because people still refuse to see it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? There's just so much societal stigma behind it. Like, again, I mean, like, okay, this is hilarious. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Sorry, no, I just, I feel like I have so many anecdotes. But there's this one point, I mean, I'm, like, totally against arranged marriage, right? But I'm very busy with uh, medical school. And my mom thought it was a great idea to invite some people over. Okay, not a big deal. I'm, like, making my bed. Mom's like, oh, we're having some people over. I'm thinking as a friend. My sister comes out and tells me, they're coming here to see you. I'm like, okay, great. (laughs) So um, after that, uh, my mom was like, oh, she pulled me aside. And she's like, just don't mention any of your work. Don't mention, um, like, your work with the documentary, nothing like that hide your antidepressants and anything like, like that. So, by the end of it... Like, hi, I'm Ruby. I suffer with mental health. <laughs> that's, honestly, I swear to God, that's exactly what I did. Because <laughs> the thing is that, um, like, one of the first things that she said to me, <laughs> like the mother, she goes up to me, she's like, also, um, what did you cook here tonight? I was like, I'm cook. Like, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I just, I don't have time to cook. I make smoothies and stuff like that. She's like, oh. I'm like, yeah, okay, bye. So, um... <laughs> Doris is crazy. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, come on. Like, I'm in medical school. There's no way I'm going to just, you know, give that up just to marry your son. Which is whatever. <laughs> Anyways, at the end of the day, she's like, oh, my God, here's, like, a picture of my son. Do you want to talk to him? I was like, I mean, I guess. Okay, I'm not deal. <laughs> um, so, I think, like, one of the first things that, um, like, even talking to him, like, as a friend, just getting to know him, um, I was like, just to let you know, I'm suffering through this. And the funny thing is, he is a physician himself. He did not want to talk to me after I told him that. Really? Right? Which was very shocking to me. Because the thing is that, you know what I think, is that individuals who are, like, Muslim Muslim psychiatrists. Because I know actually a few psychiatrists and a few people in clinical psychology um, that are Muslim. My cousin's husband is also a psychiatrist and he's Muslim. Yeah. Like, devout. Boring Muslim. That's so weird. <laughs> I've a, never noticed that. That, like, we don't talk about as a community, but, like, you can become a psychiatrist. And, like, exactly. Because, because, you know, depression, 
um, exists in other cultures, just not ours. Right. Just not like gay people. Exactly. Gay people don't exist in Indian yeah. culture. Yeah, right. We can talk about it, but it's not here. Right. So um, it, it's funny you say that because the thing is that I know um, actually one of the individuals she's um, getting a PhD in clinical neuropsychology. Oh my goodness, that's the basis of mental illness. Like you know, that's what it is. But the thing is that when I approached her to come out and talk about depression and uh, the stigma and mental illness, she's like, oh, I'm not very comfortable talking about this. Oh, my goodness. So do you think, like, this is just a white disorder? Like, this is just where Caucasians have mental illness, that it doesn't exist in the Muslim community? And another um, psychiatrist who is also Muslim and a female, I thought she was going to be great to come out and talk about this documentary. But again, she just kind of you know, politely declined and said, I, I would not like to be a part of this because I really think that they believe it is just a white illness, that it's just a very Western, um, it's just based in Western culture, which is horrible. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, of course you're, you're a doctor, you're a psychiatrist. Great. You're treating all these people, but oh wait, it's not, let's not talk about what's going on with you or like what's going on with our kids. I mean, come that on, that makes absolutely no sense. My mind. I can't believe that. That makes me so sad. And the thing is that these individuals are very highly educated. They are, they grew up in a Western culture, you know, um, getting a PhD at University of Windsor and, you know, growing up here, I would think that you would be a little bit more inclined to talk about this. However, I think that there's just still so much um, shame and so much ignorance um, that they don't want to talk about it with themselves. That really does blow my mind because I'm like, well, I mean, why are you getting into this profession when there needs to be there, there needs to be a conversation across all cultures, right? It's not just a Western disease, mm-hmm. you know, um, like cancer, like, you know, it happens everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Like mental illness does not discriminate against sex or religion, race, ethnicity. It doesn't. It's weird for some reason this applies to so many things, but like, even when we were talking about, like, uh, rape or domestic violence and mm-hmm. mental illness, it's so different when the tables are turned on yourself. Exactly. You can identify, for some reason, your your brain can't identify it as what it is, mm-hmm. as that label, but if it's somebody else, you can be like, oh, this is definitely, you're depressed. Right, you exactly. You definitely have something wrong with you. But when it's mm-hmm. yourself, you're just like, no, it's different, it's not mm-hmm. like that. Why do we do that to ourselves? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like, um, even with me, I feel like... Um, when I was doing my rotations, I was like, oh, wow, very severely depressed. Oh, yeah, she's on antidepressants. Great, great, great. Like, got it. Understand. Mm. But when I was suffering through it and I saw signs of it in myself, I was like, oh, whatever. I think I'm just sad. You know, maybe I just miss my family. Maybe I miss my cat. Something like that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think it is very hard to come to terms with that. And I think that individuals who are taking positions, um, like in social work and in psychiatry and psychology, they need to be more open with themselves and they need to be more aware of the fact that this is happening to their brothers, their sisters, their parents, their friends. It's not just like a, a white illness. It's not a Western illness. Um, because I think it's very easy for them to um, be a third party and look at it from the outside. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, yeah, I can pick out that person's depressed. They have schizophrenia. They're depressed. They have body dysmorphia. But outside of that bubble is just the entire Muslim population, mm-hmm. their friends, their family, and it's just they're pretty much immune to it, mm-hmm. right? So I think that that's another thing that we we really have to work towards um, because the thing is, like, it's it's great that we're, we're getting more individuals in these fields, but I think that there still needs to be a lot more done to allow them 
to be within that bubble too and to understand that you know this happens to everyone it's not just again a western illness mm-hmm. uh tell us a little bit more about uh sea assist in your work with them so sea assist is under the umbrella of the islamic institute of knowledge and they are an amazing ngo company um they actually work with um healthcare professionals they work with social workers psychiatrists um, the Detroit uh, Metro Police, um, various different um, uh, authorities in regards to mental illness. So uh, what their main, um, what the idea behind C-Assist is that they do want to get the idea of mental illness um, out in the open and talk about it in society. So it is based out of Dearborn, where there is obviously, we have the largest Muslim population in North America, um, and we are fighting against the stigma of mental illness. So one of the projects that we have currently going on is something called a youth uh, coordination program. So we're trying to go into schools um, and basically doing activities with them and starting from the bottom up. So starting with, uh, I mean, as kids as young as eight years old and, you know, talking to them about signs and symptoms of depression, how to come to talk to someone about it, you know, um, which is excellent because, I mean, Coming from a household where, I mean, let's say they're new immigrants, they haven't really talked about mental illness, if we can target their children and see, oh, you know what, these are the signs and symptoms of mental illness, maybe you want to talk about it, these are the resources that we have for you, um, that is a very important thing. I think that is very um, important in the sense that they, they can receive help. Um, they can understand that, you know what, even if they don't have their parents to talk to, even if they feel stigmatized in their society, there are Muslim professionals, there are other professionals that can help them in regards to that. So that's one of the programs that we have. Another program that we have is, uh, we actually ended up having a symposium uh, in July, which is working with healthcare professionals, again with uh, the police. We have lawyers, we have uh, social workers, we have family physicians. Basically, they came together to devise a program in regards to uh, how we can fight the stigma of mental illness. So uh, again, this is, you know, it's one thing to just sit here at a table and talk about it. You know, we can talk about it for hours and hours and hours, but what we want to do is implement specific programs where we can target um, specific individuals. Like uh, one of the things that we're doing is we want to go train imams um, in the mosques. Because uh, let's say that there's uh, more conservative Muslims who are struggling with mental illness. One of the first things that they would want to do is, you know, probably pray more. The thing that we do want to target is the imams, that they should be able to speak about it. They should receive maybe even some kind of training or at least have those resources, maybe even a list at the least to show these individuals that, you know what, that this doesn't make you a bad Muslim. These are the resources that we have. Please go see someone. I feel like in in mosques and in uh, Islamic centers, we really don't have that. We don't have those resources at all. That would um, almost nip it in the butt too, right? Like if you're if you have this issue and you go to talk to your mom and they're the first one that says like it's okay, right? This is how you get help. Yeah. Then immediately when they talk to their children or their friends about it, they're saying like we have somebody in the in the mosque that you can talk to. Mm-hmm. Right. That's going to change everyone's perspective on it. Which is amazing because I think, like, it, it is uh, one of the first-line defenses that we have against this. I mean, the imam is such a prominent figure in our culture, um, in our religion, and if they can start to talk about it and they can 
um, have some of the resources at least, even if it's some training or, you know, again, giving them a list of these healthcare professionals, that would at least start a conversation. Um, you know, we, we really do want to train the moms that have um, this notion that, oh, let's not link it to Islam and mental illness. That's not what we're talking about at all. There's absolutely, again, no reconciliation between the religion and mental illness at all. What we're trying to do is fight against the culture of it, right? Um, so with that, with training them, it would really be a start of something. Uh, it would be a start of a movement. Um, and I think that this is a very hot topic right now in regards to mental illness that um, there's so many Muslim individuals, the youth is suffering right now. Um, you know, there's, there's moms and, and dads that are suffering silently with this and they have absolutely nowhere to go. Like, who do they reach out to? Right. Right. So I feel like, uh, with these training programs, that would be, um, an amazing achievement that, you know, we're, we're working towards that currently. So with, uh, bridging the, bridging the gap of the stigma of mental illness, the Institute of Islamic uh, Knowledge and C-Assist, they're implementing programs that is do they're doing amazing work in regards to that and they're actively working they're very proactive in regards to that they do want to have youth programs where the youth comes in they can watch movies you know play jeopardy games just kind of understand what mental illness is and it's not even related to just depression and anxiety it's related to suicide and um drug overdose heroin use so it's it's a wide spectrum of individuals that we're trying to target at this point that's awesome. Yeah. I, I think you would have touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to ask to see, like, today. Mm -hmm. um, I know that your parents have had, like, a little bit of pushback with your documentary. Mm -hmm. How has their relationship to your relationship with mental illness changed? I feel like, to be honest, it, it fluctuates. They are immigrants from Pakistan. They've been living here for the past 20 years. And I think that uh, for the last three three years, when I did start to touch upon it, that you know, maybe I'm suffering through something and I can't really point out what it is. They, they started to kind of understand like, okay, maybe this is just something more than her being sad because she's having these outbursts. She's crying uncontrollably, like she's hyperventilating and what the heck is going on. So I think when I came to them and told them about this documentary that I wanted to do, they were very hesitant because they didn't want me to have a bad reputation in, in Windsor or with my colleagues, with my peers. Um, they said, if you're gonna do this, people are gonna pretty much, you know, break off contact with you, which has been somewhat true. And that's very unfortunate because the thing is that being vocal about something like this, again, they, they pretty much think that you're crazy or you're a hippie or you're too westernized. Um, you know, you're not conservative enough and they'll point out things like, oh, well, she doesn't wear hijab. She, rides a motorcycle or she she goes out she hangs out with guys oh my goodness there's absolutely no there's no relationship to that at all but i think because they do find these things they link it to that that oh well of it's course like she's scapegoat. crazy exactly <laughs> so they they do tend to find these little things that oh of course she's crazy i mean she's not even a muslim you know what i mean so um i think that that's what they were worried about um and I guess that they they still do have a right to be worried about it because the like I feel like our society right now is still so closed off to the notion of mental illness right now. But when I spoke to them and I said you have to be the first ones in your circle of friends and alhamdulillah like they have a, a pretty pretty prominent um, uh, 
presence in Windsor. I said, if you be a part of this and you're the first one to talk about your daughter suffering through mental illness, maybe it would spark something with your friends or something like that. Right. So they agreed to be a part of it. Um, but again, I think with, with any kind of obstacles, um, any kind of, uh, a hardship that comes with the documentary, they tend to regress a little bit. Right. Um, like again, with the individual that ended up wanting to cut her part out, my mom was actually very upset about that because they're, they're friends. Um, so she said, listen, we can't have this. And what are we going to do? If you keep them a part of this documentary, it could cause so much turmoil for them and then ruining my relationship with them. So that's a very real issue that we have where people are just breaking up contact and people are getting on bad terms because of this, which is why, you know, talking about an illness means you're doing something right. But it's just, it's so heartbreaking. You know, you think about that. I mean, uh, being friends for so long and then this talking about mental illness and talking about depression and wanting to see Tree about it. If, if you're going to break off friendships and break off relationships because of that, that tells you that this is such a prevalent issue that we have right now. Yeah. Right. So I think with my parents, it, it does fluctuate from time to time. I think especially with my dad, I think he he's still coming to terms with me taking medication. My mom, every now and again, she'll be like, when are you, you going to get off medication? And, you know, she doesn't really understand that. But I think with, with my sisters, with their support and stuff, they're beginning to understand it a little bit more. And thank goodness that they're more understanding than, you know, um, other individuals out in, in, in the community right now. Do you have any advice for people that are going through this that want to talk to their parents about it? What are, what advice do you have for them on how to approach it or See, the thing like that. is that <laughs> we actually ended up um, talking to uh, a few social workers who are actively doing work in this um, in this regard. So uh, at the symposium that was uh, in July, part of the Islamic Institute of Knowledge, I specifically asked that question because I, I said, you know what, we can talk about this day and night. However, there's going to be children out there who are still scared to go to their parents and talk about this. How do we combat that? What one of uh, the ladies uh, said over there was basically what we would do is that we would have um, social workers in schools um, and, you know, we would want to uh, spread the word of mental illness and how to get treatment for that. So we would have individuals coming to us and then we would go with the kids to their house and set up a very safe environment to talk to their parents. Um, and say, listen, you know what? These are the signs and symptoms of it. This is how we could receive treatment. So I think that's one avenue that we could take, which would create a very safe environment for the child themselves. And it wouldn't cause shame for the parents or anything like that. Because, I mean, it is confidential at the end of the day, right? Um, but besides that, I feel like... Because a lot of our listeners are in their 20s or mm-hmm. in their late teens. So for something that doesn't maybe have, like... If they're in a university, they don't have that outlet. Um, what kind of what kind of things have helped you, or do you think that could help them in approaching it? You know, to be honest, the the biggest thing that helped me was constantly talking about it. Um, I understand that it's it's very difficult to do, but it gets to a point where you need to do what's best for you. Um, just coming out and talking to your parents and saying, "Listen, mom. Listen, dad." This isn't something that I can control right now. 
um, speak about it from maybe even a medical standpoint and say, like, listen, dude, like, the, this is not right. Like, this is something that I don't need to be ashamed of. You know, I really do need to receive treatment for it. I think that's the best way to go. Um, if we can't do that, I, I really strongly suggest, you know, reaching out to social workers or psychiatrists, um, just any of your friends who, who even have any kind of experience with this. There's no reason to be scared. The people who will shame you and stigmatize you either don't understand how devastating mental illness could be or, you know, very bluntly, they're not your friends. Because at the end of the day, if, if people are leaving your side because you're suffering so violently from a mental illness, or even if it's not as, as bad and you're just, you know, going through an episode and you need to talk to someone, having friends that you can confide in, that's the biggest thing. And if you don't have people like that, that makes it even worse. That makes you feel even more alone. So there's resources out there that you can reach. Um, there's an amazing program at MSU. Dr. Farah Abbasi is an amazing psychiatrist. She's working with individuals, you know, suffering with mental illness. Uh, there's the Muslim Mental Health Conference that you can go to. Um, and now there's a documentary that we've been working on. Um, attend these events. Attend uh, narratives of pain. Um, you know, talk to people. Get the word out. Um, I feel like that's the biggest thing. That's what's going to heal our community. That's what's going to help individuals. And I really think that if you're the one that brings up the conversation, you'll actually be pleasantly surprised with how supportive people are. I agree. Like, I was afraid to tell my best friend that I was on medication, and right. that's why I kind of stopped drinking for a few months, because I didn't know if it was going to affect it. You know, right. I didn't want to see if I'm dependent on alcohol to be in social situations. Right. So a little experiment for myself, too. Mm -hmm. And I told her... And I started crying because she was so supportive. You know, she's yeah. asking me all these questions without sounding judgy. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then that opened the window to, I can talk about it. And then if it makes someone feel uncomfortable and not in a bad way, then I won't talk about it with them. And that's exactly. Okay. exactly. And then I had that situation happen a few times. But then people would ask me, how's therapy going? How's the medication? Right. You know, I've actually looked into that. And like, it just kept going and going. And it was so great. Because, yeah, there are people that you have to filter out because they just don't understand. Right. And you're like, all right, and you know what? you will. Right. Maybe you'll remember this conversation, and that's great. Maybe you won't, but I don't want to be there for that. Right. <laughs> you know? No, I completely understand. So. And the thing is, like, I mean, for people who, who don't necessarily understand it, they're not bad people. They just might be, um, they might not have the resources. They might not mm -hmm. have ever experienced this in their life before. Right. So that's fine. That's great. However, at the point in your life where you are suffering with mental illness, I feel like you really do need that individual who's very supportive, mm -hmm. who can listen to you, who isn't judgy, who will ask you, hey, how's therapy going? You know, who will maybe even go to therapy with you one day, who will ask you how your medications are, or if you're struggling with medications, you know, why don't you try something different? Or why don't we try a different avenue? That's what you really need mm -hmm. at this point. Um, and it's funny you say that because initially when... I um, made that Facebook post. I was so terrified. I was on the plane and I was typing this like a huge paragraph up and I was so terrified because my mom's on Facebook, my sister's mm. on Facebook and my family's on Facebook, my closest friends, my colleagues and me coming out and talking about this. I was like, oh my God, just uh, I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. Like, but I felt like I really needed to come out and talk about this for my own catharsis, Right. right? And as soon as I posted it, people were, like, commenting on it and private messaging me with so much support and saying, oh, my goodness, like, we didn't even know you were going through this, but we're so proud of you. And 
I feel like, again, you, you just really need to get over that hump mm-hmm. and being so terrified of it because there is acceptance. Yeah, there is stigma and you're going to find those individuals. But if you do come out and talk about it, maybe you're going to see that one person raising their hand and being like, you know what? I'm here with you, girl. Mm-hmm. Or I'm here with you. Like, you know, we, we're going to do this together. Mm-hmm. And that one person makes all the difference. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. One last one. We'd like to talk about self-care a lot. We're mm-hmm. very into that. What are some things that you do as part of your self-care routine? Something that I do as part of my self-care routine is, like, binge watch a Netflix show and not feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. And, like, allow myself to say no to friends to going out, to stay I feel like, yeah, I, I, I feel like I'm having a lot of trouble with that. <laughs> yes, say no. But, okay, you know what? The thing is that um, since being on medication, I feel like that's the biggest thing that's helped me. And uh, I'll be very honest about it because um, it's something called escitalopram. It's a 10 milligram pill. And um, it's the one that has the lowest side effects. And thank God, you know, um, no GI symptoms doesn't, you know, you don't lose any sleep or anything like that. So I've been on it for the last year, um, like just around 11, 12 months. And um, one of my really close friends uh, basically said, hey, you know what, like, I don't even remember the kind of person that you were a year before that, like, you've done a complete 180. You're not like that bitch, whatever. (laughs) So why don't you try weaning off of it? So, I mean, I tried cutting my dose in half. And I felt like, okay, you know what? Let me try it for maybe a week. And then I'll slowly try weaning off of it. And I felt like, oh my God, that cloud is coming. And I physically felt it like coming, like looming over my body where I'm like, I don't feel good today. And I feel like I'm going to cry about something and I'm not close to my period. So that's not it. (laughs) You know? So, um, I felt like that was something I didn't want to do. And then there was other days where I'm like, you know what? Fine. Screw the five milligrams. Let me just quit complete cold turkey. And that made it so much worse because I'm like, you know what? No, it's, it's not that I'm dependent on it. I feel like it gets me back to my baseline. It makes me feel like myself. It doesn't make you a zombie. And I feel like so many people think that it does. Mm -hmm. No, it makes you like a brighter, more colorful version of yourself where you actually do see in color and you're like, oh my God, wow, like I'm happy. You know, you're (laughs) skipping down the road and you're actually very happy. Um, So in regards to that, I think that's the biggest thing for me is uh, in self-care is that I do take medication. That's huge for me right now. For, um, I know that for you, uh, therapy works. I went to therapy maybe a couple of times and a big fan. <laughs> I I felt like um, I was able to deal with my issues myself. And um, one of the things was that I kind of made goals for myself where I'm like, you know what, wake up in the morning and say one thing positive about yourself. It sucks initially. And I know it sounds very hippie and very cliche, but like try it for like three or four weeks, it will slowly start to make a difference. So I do that. And then um, in terms of other goals where I'm like, let me get back to my baseline where I used to love to bake and I used to love to knit. And it's funny you say saying no to people uh, is what you're trying to do, but I'm actually trying to say yes to people because I think when I was going through my depression, I just completely lost all contact with, with people. I just shut them out mm-hmm. and being alone by myself and just being in those thoughts, I felt like added to so much of my stress. I'm always this outgoing, lively person. I love making friends. I love talking. So I feel like, you know what, I'm going to do that. I want to go to these events and I want to go eat so much pizza, like, you know, I'm going to throw up, whatever. Um, so I'm, I feel like that's something that I really enjoy doing. So I really suggest that, I mean, people that are suffering through mental illness, get help and start enjoying the things that 
you really did enjoy initially. You know, um, there's so many things um, that that could help in regards to that, whether it's talking to your friend or, you know, binging on Netflix, whatever you enjoy doing, that's going to be the biggest thing in helping with your recovery. This, like, makes me, because I did the same thing. Like, I started therapy, or I first went on medication, and I was on it for, like, a few months, mm-hmm. and it helped a lot. And my mom was on it was, like, get medication. Like, right. it help you. Because she's tried going off it before, too, and she, like, it turns into a monster. Right. And so um, I started taking it, and then I was like, I don't need this. Like, it's just in my head. And even myself, I was, like, telling myself mm-hmm. that, like, I don't need this. I don't want to be on this long term for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And I went off of it, and I've been off of it now for a few years, but I still get those those stretches of, like, terrible depression. And this makes me talk, even just talking to you, like, makes me want to go revisit that. and, and Because even though, like, I'll, I'll feel, like, 90%. You know, like, it's still not all the way there. Right. But it makes me want to revisit, like, my medication and, like, thinking about um, getting back to that and, and being, making that part of my new self-care routine. Right. Um, See, yeah. the thing is that, um, like, I've actually said this to, to my friends before, too, where when I was off medication, I was just 0% of the person that I was. And then when I tried weaning off of it or when I just didn't take it cold turkey... I felt maybe like 70% by myself, but there was still some kind of part of me that was missing. And I'm like, I just don't feel like I'm there yet. I don't yeah. feel like my, my lively self. And, you know, even just saying like, listen, I don't, I don't really want to come out tonight for dinner. I just felt like that wasn't me. Um, so I feel like with taking medication, it's like 100% me. And it's just making me feel so much better where I can actually be myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not making you suicidal, thank goodness. I mean, it's it's such a low percentage of individuals that um, uh, do have those side effects. And I feel like I really do want to reiterate that because I think a lot of people are terrified of that. They're terrified of suicide ideations. They're terrified of um, potentially getting addicted to it or potentially uh, getting all these weird side effects. But the thing is that it doesn't happen. It really, really doesn't happen. One of the biggest things is... Um, just having an upset stomach and just eat a lot of carbs. That's fine. You know what I mean? (laughs) But, um, I think that there needs to be a lot more education for that so people can receive this kind of treatment. Right? So. It's funny that you say, um, therapy didn't work for you. Mm -hmm. And I, like, I don't know if I've heard anyone say that before. So it's interesting to hear that because I've been doing therapy, even for you, you were doing it. I've been doing it for over a year now Mm -hmm. and for like, almost nine months I was going every single week like once a week to really therapy. yeah just just talk therapy <clears throat> and it's like changed my entire life like it's it's opened me up to meditation she kind of feeds into like the like my kookier side uh-huh. so like she feeds into like the meditation and like the spirituality right like, you're aligning your chakras and things like that right and so that has really helped like um surprisingly but but I think you're right like that there's still that gap mm-hmm. that part that you need to like what what kind of medicine are you going into, by the way? Uh, I am going to family medicine. Okay, cool. So the reason is because I feel like um, in family medicine, it's very general. Like, you're, you're a clinical generalist. However, there's so much part of it that is that has to do with psychiatry that I really do enjoy doing. And oh, I want cool. to be that individual that people can come to. And I'm like, you know what? Just come talk to me. Oh, my God. You're brown. Are you suffering through mental illness? Come talk to me. It's fine. Because, you know, like, oh, there, there needs to be someone out there. And there's so many individuals that are. But the more people that we have, the the, the faster we can get rid of the stigma. Yeah. Right? Um, but just to touch upon um, your therapy, I feel like, I don't know, maybe I just didn't give it a chance. 
I, I really, really don't think I gave it a chance. I just felt like maybe talking to someone wasn't really helping me or maybe it was cognitive therapy. So cognitive therapy is basically when um, anytime that you go in, they give you like a different goal to achieve. They'll be like, oh, you know, maybe write in a journal every week and see how that makes you feel. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really about that life. Yeah. So I was like, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to help me at all. So I felt like, uh, and especially maybe even with my time crunch, you know, being in med school, I felt like, you know what, medication is making me very happy. Um, talking to my family is making me very happy. The the friends that I gained within this community, talking to them and coming out and doing like things like narrative of pain and doing this documentary and coming out on this podcast, that's making me very happy. So I think that's very therapeutic in itself. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, once you do get to that point where you're like, okay, let me figure out what works for me you can really go with that, whether it is therapy or it is medication. And I think that's perfect to say. Like, It's perfect that like something is working for me and something else is working for you. Right. So to know that like not one, you're not going to have one answer. Right. Because everyone is different. So you have to kind of try different things to figure out what works, like you said, what works for you. Right. And go with that. I just think that between you know, having reputation between having status and between that perfect trophy, um, that, that perfect family unit, I think people really do want to secure themselves in that, Mm -hmm. that any little crack that comes in, especially with mental illness, they're just going to be labeled as crazy and they're going to be seen as delusional as that, like pretty much schizophrenic, uh, very extreme patient, you know, who doesn't really know how to, um, I guess, mesh into society, I think that's what they normally think of. Mm-hmm. When depression is just very, very subtle sometimes, you know? So I think that that really needs to be expressed a lot in our community. Okay, so this is a part of the episode where we like to play a little this or that type game that we brilliantly named this or that. So rapid fire, quick questions, um, or quick answers, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, we have five questions for you. You just have to pick this or that. Okay. No thinking involved, no justifying it. Just go. Okay. Yeah, comes to your mind. Oh my god, I'm nervous. Oh, I have to go first. Yeah. Um, going out to the movies or staying home and watching Netflix? Movies. Justin Bieber or Justin Timberlake? Justin Timberlake. <laughs> Duh. That was a good answer. Canada versus US yeah. kind of thing. Oh, okay. No, Canada. <laughs> my allegiance. <laughs> They're never going to let you in now. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, flowers or chocolate? Chocolate. Mm. Grey's Anatomy or Scrubs? Oh, no. Don't make me <laughs> choose that. Oh, my goodness. No. Oh. They totally feed into two different, like, moods that you're in, too. I feel like, I, feel like yeah. I, I, I live my life as Scrubs. You know, like, how he talks to himself? I feel like I do that on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. I felt like that yesterday, and I was like, <laughs> you know, um, but I want to be like Meredith Grace. I don't know. Can I, can I have a tie? Nope. Damn it. Okay. You gotta pick one. That's the beauty of this game. Um, damn it. Scrubs. Okay, Scrubs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, motorcycle or convertible? Motorcycle. Okay. We kind of figured that Yep. 100%. <laughs> Okay, so thank you so much for doing this. And we did this thank very you. fast. Like, we were just talking a couple days ago. 
Um, thank you for reaching out and for coming and talking to us so honestly and open about your experience and what you're doing. It's thank amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Come back so anytime. to finally meet you. I know. I'm so <laughs> happy. <laughs> um, is there anything that you would like to websites or like you said, GoFundMe pages that you'd like to um, plug, let people know about? So uh, right now I do have a GoFundMe page set up. Uh, just because we do want to host various events, uh, whether it's in Windsor, in Dearborn, Southfield, Lansing. So that is going to help cover uh, the costs for venue, for advertising. And you can uh, visit the GoFundMe page um, via my Facebook. It's Rabia Tour or Ruby T. You can find that on my Facebook page. And we'll um, link it. We'll put it in the description yeah, of the podcast and on all of our social media too. Um, and also, uh, I, I will be launching a website probably within the next week, and I'll link that as well. Awesome. It's going to be veilofsilence.com. Awesome. And when is the documentary finally? Do you have a good date that you're going to be releasing to the public? Uh, well, right now, we are talking about uh, sometime in November. We're still working out on the dates, okay. but I will keep you guys updated. <laughs> so keep your eyes and ears open for sometime in November. Yeah, awesome. This week's episode was produced by me, Shama, with post-production by Joseph Aquino, which I've been saying wrong for the last 11 episodes. I'm so sorry, Joe. We love you. As always, as always, a big thank you to Brown Girl Magazine, the online publication that helps empower young South Asian women in the United States. Check them out. They're amazing. Their Snapchat is so awesome and so much fun to watch. Sounds creepy for some reason. I don't know why. You said your Snapchat, not like brown girls, so. You know, because that would sound creepy. I don't know why that was on its so strange. I wasn't even thinking that, but now that you said it, I don't know. Check out their um, Facebook, Twitter, their Instagram. They have social media galore. Um, you can find their stuff in the description of this podcast. A big thank you to Brown Rung Tea who sent us these fab chai-related shirts, which are amazing. Thank you so much. We love them. They are phenomenal. Um, you can also get discounts. You can win free shirts all through their Instagram and Facebook page. So like their stuff. Again, description will have their information on there as well. Today's music was provided by F. Casper, our good friend. You can check out more of his music on his SoundCloud, which is soundcloud.com slash F-U-C-K-A-S-P-E-R. Fuck Asper. That's amazing! (laughs) And if you're listening to us for the first time, thank you so much. And if you don't know where to find us or if you forgot, you can find us at Chai Tea Party on Snapchat and Instagram, Chai Tea Show on Twitter. And if you want to email us um, any questions, any suggestions, you can always email us at chaiteapartyshow at gmail.com. So, if you like your therapist, documentaries, or anxious Indian girls, share this with someone you like. Or don't like. Someone who struggles with their mental health. Or knows you struggle with yours. Or someone who needs to understand that anxiety and depression are not a choice. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Cheers. No more falling down. No more falling down. Not wondering if you're down. No more falling down.